All right, everybody, how you doing? Welcome, welcome. How many of you are um, just as excited as I am that school's back in session? So everybody, I know there's a few teachers that are not happy. I'm sorry, Latanya, I didn't mean to say, and my wife is a teacher, so she's really excited. Um, but no, I, I'm, I'm uh, John Keeler, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and I'm excited to be able to uh, just continue our act study. We're in the home stretch. Prior to September 17th, the, the one service that we're going to have there, uh, Pastor R is going to wrap us up um, in two more weeks and finish Acts. So you're probably wondering how we're going to go from chapter 21 through the end. Um, but we're, we're going to cover about five or six chapters today. Um, if you had lunch plans, just let people know. <laughs> Might be a little late. But as, as Dan and Rachel uh, announced, you know, we're, we're a church that's all about discipleship. We talk about it a lot. Everybody, you know, most churches talk about discipleship in one way or another. But here, uh, we really exist to be disciples who make disciples who live in love like Jesus. Now, one of the most difficult parts of the journey of discipleship, if you haven't faced it so far, is learning that the path is narrow, right? Have you, have you learned that yet? Matthew seven thirteen through 14, I think many of you know this verse. Jesus is saying, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So in this passage, he's, he's really telling his followers how difficult the life of a disciple is. It's restrictive. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. It involves rejection, trials. It involves persecution. But here's the key to that. It's the only way that leads to life. The only way. Now... As a kid, I, I, don't, I never really understood this verse. I don't know about you. When I was younger, it didn't really kind of set in. But when I got to high school, to college, it started to shape out. I started to see what this verse meant. Right? I found out that if you stand out too much for, for Christ, you're a Jesus freak. For those of you that are my age, you know what that is. Or the world hates you. They mock you. You're made fun of. Right? And when I got to my work, my first job out of, out of college, all of a sudden, I really found that it really applied. You know, you're in a company, everybody likes a good employee who goes along with company culture, who, you know, supports what the company supports. Um, it's the easiest way to land, you know, the big promotions. The bonuses, the corner office, it's, it's, it's the only way to land those things because it's the principle, and we're going to see it in a little bit, that if you want to be friends with the world, you can have whatever you want, whatever your heart desires. But as a believer, eventually you kind of come to a, a realization that something's missing with that whole picture, right? Now, there's a philosopher, his name is Albert Hubert. It's an interesting name. He said, the man who is anybody and does anything is surely going to be criticized, vilified, and misunderstood. 
This is the penalty for greatness, and every great man understands it. The final proof of greatness lies in being able to endure derision without resentment. Now, as, as, as wise as he might sound, you know, a lot of human wisdom obviously comes from the Bible, right? And I think of the verse uh, that we commonly call the cost of discipleship, where Christ said in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So, it's really a simple scenario for us, right, as believers. There's, there's two choices. We can, you know, if, if you're saved, you can choose the mediocre, average, you know, run-of-the-mill life. And the cost is low, but the rewards are very low as well, right? Or you can choose to be a disciple who's out there making disciples, who's being used for God, actively part of his work, standing up for the truth of the, of, of the scripture. And the cost here on earth is extremely high. Could be your life. But the rewards are even greater. So today as we open the word, uh, we're going to look at Paul's example. Paul's going to give us a great example of this main point, that if you want to be great for the kingdom of God, you will be misunderstood and maligned. So let's turn uh, to Acts 21. Uh, we're going to cover verses 27 through 40 and, and kind of summarize 22. So last week, I hope you were here with us or you uh, caught the podcast online if you missed it, but last week we, we looked at how Paul and the Jerusalem elders came up with a plan Okay, they were worried about the unity of the church there in Jerusalem. So they came up with this plan. You know, there was all these rumors circulating uh, from, from Paul's enemies that he was uh, against the Jewish people, that he was against the traditions and the law. And so they came up with a plan to have him um, underwrite two, or I'm sorry, four Nazarites and have them go through the purification ceremony so that he could show his unity with his brothers and sisters. And uh, just really... Uh, show that he respected tradition. So as we, as we turn to verses 27 through 28, let's see what happens. This is actually a pretty interesting section of scripture. It says, the seven days were almost ended when some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple and they roused a mob against him. They grabbed him yelling, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey Jewish laws. He speaks against the temple and even defiles this holy place by bringing in Gentiles. And then after that, in verse 30, we read, the whole city was rocked by these accusations. And a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were shut behind him. So Paul was in the temple. He's performing this, uh, most likely the seventh day, he's performing this purification ceremony. He's going along with this plan. And these guys from Ephesus see him there. 
And they're, they're probably like, wait a minute, who is that? Yeah, that's Paul. Yep, that's the guy. And they knew him from his time, um, as we learned in Ephesus. He spent three years there. He had a ministry there. He even preached in the synagogue. So he would have probably been preaching to these Jews in the synagogue. And what we see in uh, Acts 19, verses 8 through 9, what happens is Paul's in there. He's boldly speaking the gospel to these, to these Jews in the synagogue. And these same men, these enemies of his, were sitting probably in the, in the audience. And he was boldly speaking the gospel until the time when they began to reject it. They became stubborn. And then they really turned on Paul. And so he left the synagogue and started preaching in a school nearby. But here's the thing. So after he was done in Ephesus, he continued on his journey through other parts, you know, preaching the gospel. And these same men he references in Acts 20, he, he references these same men were after him. They were plotting against him. They were constantly roadblocks, but he, he, was, he was persistent. He, he didn't, uh, you know, succumb to the pressure. And here he is in Jerusalem, and they see him. And I'm sure it t- takes no, uh, you know, it doesn't take a second to recognize this is Paul, this is the guy, we tried to get him before, and here he is now. Let's, let's take him out. So they stir up a crowd against him by using three false accusations. And these are serious allegations to the Jewish people, right? He's against the Jewish people themselves, the law, the temple, okay? And if you think about it, what we talked about last week, his very presence in the temple was refuting those claims. He was there to show unity, to show that he supported Jewish traditions. But here they are making these accusations, and you know how accusations are. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, in my life, just a completely false accusation. It's like a straw man. You, you don't even know how to defend it, because if you defend yourself, you look guilty. And if you don't, you look guilty. And that's where Paul is right now, they're making these claims. But here's the irony in this, and, and there is always, I, I don't know how you want to call it, I think God's providential irony at times in your own life, one of those situations where, you know, something comes back around and you're like, ah, yes, yes. Well, if you recall back in Acts 6, when they stoned Stephen to death, these are the, the very same three accusations that were made against Stephen that were false then as well, and Paul sat there, then, you know, at that point in time, his name was Saul, and he was against, you know, the, the, the believers, but he, he was in approval and, and helped approve of the death of, of Stephen for these same false accusations. So he knew what this game was, and they were, they were going to take him out. So they try to bring up this crowd against him, and, you know, he knows these are false accusations. What else can he do? You know, it looks like his entire plan, the strategy was a failure. And you know, in, in this part of the story, I want to take a break and just say, again, he's, he's out there doing the work of God. He's trying to be great for God's kingdom. He knew what he was coming, what he was up against and what he was coming into. But again, if you want to be great for the kingdom of God, then you will be maligned and misunderstood. I'll, I'll, I'll put it even clearer. Here's, here's a verse that, that really challenges me. 
2 Timothy 3.12 says, Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Look at how that's worded. Everyone. It's not an option. It's not an exception. For those, you know, the kids in school, it's an if-then statement. If you want to live a godly life, then you will be persecuted. And that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, you know, it, it, it's a hard thing to, to really accept. And, you know, alternately, if, if you want to live an easy life, if you drift through life and go along with the culture, what everybody else does and says, listens to, watches, you do everything everybody else does, you never have to worry about persecution. You never have to worry about it. But again, if you want to be great for God's kingdom, you'll be misunderstood and maligned. You will be targeted by others. If you want to do extraordinary things, you will be hated. It's a tough message. And I think of all the men and women of faith that we know about. You know, you look back through the the stories of Noah and Moses, Joseph, the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, Protestant reformers. They only, they all understood this. And and I remember uh, a missionary, C.T. Studd, would say, only what's done for Christ will last, right? We only have a short period of time. Only what's done for Christ will last. And it took me a while in my career to really understand this, this principle. I, it, was, it was a tough one. But it was, it was first year in, I started to realize, um, you know, it's easy to fall asleep in the real world. Hopefully it's not easy to fall asleep here in this sanctuary. But it's easy to fall asleep in the real world. And it's easy to fall into the trap of trying to be friends with the world. Have you done that before? I, I definitely have. And at times, I know in my own life, it, it's, I never knew that I was asleep until God woke me up. And that wake-up call, you know, generally would come through a sermon, hopefully a, a real challenging sermon. You know, God's working on your spirit. My devotions, you know, I try to spend time every morning with the Lord, and I, and I have for my whole life. And you know, he works through your personal devotions, but oftentimes it comes through a tragedy or, or a trial. That's where you get a real wake-up call. But in this one case, I remember, you know, realizing that if I wanted to accomplish anything great for God, right, if I wanted to live a life for Christ, I couldn't just go with the flow. I couldn't just conform to everybody around me. And I remember it came at a time when a pastor gave a similar sermon. It was, I would say it was one of my least favorite sermons. It was a tough one. And I learned at that time that I had become complacent. I didn't really know that, but it challenged me. I had become comfortable. I was no longer risking anything for the gospel. Does that make sense? I came to church on Sunday, I went to a small group, I led various ministries, everything was great, you know, we're all in our big Christian hug, but out in in the real world, I really wasn't very effective, I really wasn't 
very much out there for my faith. So I was watching what I said and made sure I didn't offend anyone, you know, buying that kind of concept, you know, being intimidated from my work that's like, okay, you can't say those things or don't talk about that. So I, I, bought, I bought into it. But this pastor laid down a challenge and he said, are you suffering or being persecuted for the sake of the gospel or Christ? And I remember thinking, no, I don't, I don't think I could call any of this suffering or persecution, but is that, is that really such a bad thing? That, would, that sounds like a good thing, right? But then he said, you know, 2 Timothy 3.12, he said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he also said, 1 Corinthians 1.28 says, so when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. So he said, if you're not being persecuted or suffering for the gospel, maybe you're not speaking clearly enough. And that was a challenge that I took with me. I started to carry my Bible to, to, to work. I really leaned in on conversations and was a lot more bold about my faith. And the Lord really used those opportunities. But sure enough, I mean, it was not long into that that I definitely became misunderstood and misaligned. I had several times uh, considered, you know, employees or issues that I had to deal with that was completely fabricated, but they were not happy that I was a Christian talking about being a Christian and talking about especially that, that man named Jesus and bringing my Bible. And so... It didn't take long because I made myself clear. I was choosing a side. You know, in James 4.4, 4, this is a challenging verse. James lays it down and he says, there's only two sides. You can't be Switzerland. There's no neutrality. You have to choose one. And not choosing at all is choosing a side. Listen to this verse. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think about that. It's a clear choice. We have to choose a side. We have to choose a side because not choosing, we're going along with the crowd. Paul obviously chose a side. He chose God. And his enemies surely knew that. That's why... They stirred up this crowd against him. They started beating him. They drug him out of the temple, closed the doors behind him, beat him to an inch of his death. And yet, we'll see that he still preached the gospel. He still gave people his testimony. Now, with trials that Paul face. This is what I always think sometimes. You, you go through a difficult situation. There was a time I remember coming home with, you know, talking to my wife about a situation where, um, again, you know, a false accusation that I wasn't treating a certain employee fairly because of their, their personal choices outside of work, which was completely, you know, the furthest thing from the truth. The person had a an attendance issue and would come in two hours late drunk. So it's, it's a little hard to not, you know, but they knew I was a Christian. So it was an easy, uh, 
win. And HR, you know, and all that stuff goes on. But I remember being so frustrated, and you think, why do I bother? Why do I bother? Why do I bother this? I, I, like, it's so much easier. What, does this even make a difference? Does it make a difference? And, you know, we're looking at Paul's situation. Paul lost, right? They go through all this, you know, going through a ceremony. He, he lays out this money. He's sacrificing these animals. We talked about last week. It's enough to feed a banquet of 100 people. He goes through all this trouble, and he lost. He's, he's about ready to be killed and beaten. But did he really lose? Right? I mean... Did he really lose? Is, is that not the mind of the flesh? Is that not the way the world looks at things, the results? Right? But that's not the mind of God. He followed Jesus for the sake of the gospel. He risked his neck for the sake of the gospel. And you know what? In God's eyes, he won. He won. It doesn't matter how many people were converted or if the mob you know, grew out of hand. He won. Just like Jesus, right? Our Savior came down he offered salvation, right? The good news of salvation with humility and love. And they beat him, they mocked him, and they hung him on a cross to die. Did he lose? Did Paul lose? No. Because what appears at times to be a failure or hardship with the world is actually God's better plan. He knows the end of the story. That's the beautiful thing. He knows the end of the story. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, James says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for joy. For when you know that your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing needing nothing. It's an assurance we have as believers. That's, that's, the, that's the beautiful thing. No matter what comes your way, no matter what trials, accusations, hatred, you know that God will work it for his good, for his pleasure, and for your growth. So what happened to Paul next? They're about ready to kill him. And as we look in verses 31 through 35, Things get even more heated. As they're trying to kill him, the word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately called out his soldiers and officers and ran down among the crowd. And when the mob saw that the commanders and the troops were coming, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander arrested him and ordered him bound in two chains. He asked the crowd who he was and what he had done. Some shouted one thing, some another, and since he couldn't find out the truth in all the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the fortress. And as Paul reached the stairs, the mob grew so violent, the soldiers had to lift him to their shoulders to protect him. And the crowd followed behind shouting, kill him, kill him. I'm sure at this moment... You know, I, I would be like, completely petrified, terrified. And, and we know from a couple weeks when Pastor R covered um, chapter 21, 11, 
we know that Paul knew something bad was happening, but I'm sure you know, he didn't think it was going to quite happen like this. But Agabus uh, prophesied that, that Paul would be uh, taken in chains and turned over to the Gentiles when he got to Jerusalem. So that was kind of a little bit more of a benign explanation of what he's going through, but it's definitely, it, it definitely has come true. He knew what he was com- getting into. He knew that he was walking a narrow road, and he proceeded anyway. And here he is in chains. And the commander's trying to find out what happened. There's all this confusion. Could you imagine? I mean, there's this big fortress um, that's up on the corner of the temple where the, the, the Romans would always have a lookout. And especially during this time, there was a, there was a feast going on, celebration, and you know the Jews get rowdy on feasts, feast days. So they're up there looking out, and all of a sudden, this whole crowd, I mean, the, all of Jerusalem's in an uproar. And so the commander, who's in charge of the safety of all of Jerusalem, sends hundreds of soldiers down. They go down there to find out what's happening. And when they see this man, they they understand, obviously, this is the problem. So they arrest him, put him in chains. And because the, the, the mob is so violent... And they can't find out what's going on. They want to rush him off to, back to that fortress. The, the soldiers actually had to give him a crowd surf, like kind of take him up the stairs because these, these people are yelling, kill him, kill him. They're, they're screaming at him just like they did Jesus, just like they screamed for Stephen. And just like they'll scream for you, right? With, with the hatred that's in this world, there's no surprise. I mean, you know... We all want to believe in the best of people and the world is all a big happy family. But there is so much horrible things that goes on out there. And there's so much hate. We've seen it. Just take any issue like COVID or political. Th- I mean, it, it, it brings out the worst in people. It doesn't bring out the best. But here they're yelling, kill him, kill him. And it's no surprise because they hated him like they hated Christ. Jesus warns us, in John 15, 18 through 19, he says, If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. So it hates you. The world hates each one of you. The world hates you. Do you know that? And are you ready for that? Because that's a challenge. But it can't be any more clear than that. If we go along with the world, fine, the world will love you. But if you stand for Christ, you will be hated. And I think, uh, personally, as as a parent, this is a really important lesson. We have got kids going back to school. They need to know this. They need to know this. It's a challenge. You know, for you who invest in the lives of younger people, for you who are parents... They need to see and know how to stand up for their faith, how to be an exception to the norm, how to live a godly life, not be afraid, to not be afraid. I I grew up, thankfully, as a younger kid, I grew up where my parents really, you know, gave me encouragement to speak the truth about our faith. We used to have a couple, my parents, it was... Best time, the best reward I would ever get is when I got a call from the school and, and, and the principal said, your son is uh, evangelizing people here at 
the school at Lower Salford Elementary School. And we, we can't allow that. There was, a, there was a little boy that was offended by that. Well, they encouraged me. But it's not easy, right? We don't want rejection. Do you, do you want rejection? Is it fun? No. Do we want that for our children? No. And let me tell you just an interesting thing I came across. There's a little experiment that was done by this psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. So he did this experiment, and it'll kind of get to the heart of what I'm talking about here. Participants were handed a story of somebody's life. They read through the story. They were asked to read through it twice, okay? And then they were told, this story is about your daughter, okay? She hasn't been born yet. She will soon. And this is her unavoidable future. This is her life. Now, here's the catch. You'll have five minutes to erase whatever you'd like out of that story. Five minutes. So they were given that choice, and they sat there, and, and, and they were asked, what would you erase first? And I think of it as a parent, and many of you, you know, the first thing you, you'd, you'd frantically start erasing is, you know, that, that learning disability, right? The car accident. That was a bad one. The time she was bullied and picked on. That one made me cry. So we're erasing all these things. But let me ask you this question. Is that really what's best? Is that really what's best for her? What if you erase a difficult circumstance that wakes her up to prayer? What about a challenge that shows her how to be joyful in spite of whatever circumstances? And what about that rejection that led her to see God's purpose in her life? Right? Do we really think that a privileged life of smooth sailing for our children no hurts, no pains, do we really think that that is going to make them into godly people with great character? Because if you want to be great for the kingdom of God, you'll have to be misunderstood and maligned. And it might sound harsh and it might sound a little funny coming from me right now, but the most growth you'll ever have in your life won't come through a sermon, it won't come from a book, and it won't come from a podcast. It will come through the difficult circumstances you face. Think about it. I know that's personally true for me. You know, I always used to say, you don't grow while you're laying on the beach, right? It's through the difficult circumstances that we really grow, that we need to learn that we, we must have Jesus, we must trust him. That's when we grow. So, we know what we can expect, right, for following Jesus. It's not an easy message. I don't enjoy thinking of the challenges my kids will face. But let's see how we respond when it happens. That's the important thing. We'll look at Paul's example quickly. And in verses 37 through 40, I'll summarize 
it explains that as they were taking him to the fortress, okay, finally, he's safe. Paul, if, if I were Paul, I'd be sitting there thinking, oh, thank goodness, somebody, saved by the Romans, believe it or not. So they're taking him up there. He's up on the stairs. You know, they crowd surfed him to the stairs. And, and then he asks the commander, can, can I speak to the people? Can I, can I address the crowd? Well, that's, an, that's a really stupid thing to ask for, right? I mean, I want to address the crowd. Well, the, the commander lets him, and he gets up, you know, and he starts addressing them very respectfully and humbly. I mean, the same crowd that tried to beat him to death. The same crowd. Boy, that is one example of, of being able to forgive I don't forgive that easily myself. It's tough. But he spoke in Aramaic, which was their home language, so he's really trying to bridge that gap, show them love and understanding and be peaceful. And as he does that, the crowd is silenced. Wow. I, I would be too if I were part of that crowd. What, what's this guy going to say now? I mean, half of them probably didn't know why they were beating the man. They were just caught up in the frenzy. And he goes on and he gives his testimony and he shares it in three parts. He says, you know, this is who I was. And then this is how Jesus found me. And then this is how Jesus transformed me. So he shares that testimony. It was extremely powerful. But here's the thing. I want to look at four principles that we can learn from that interaction before we get into anything else. The first thing is, I, th I think anytime you're misunderstood and maligned, anytime you're facing persecution of any kind, the first thing to do is follow Christ's example. That's what Paul was doing here. He was following Christ's example, right? As Jesus was reviled, he didn't fight back. Romans 12, 19 says, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. We've got to lay it in his capable and sovereign hands. It's not for us to repay evil with evil. In fact, it goes beyond that. We're supposed to bless those who persecute us. And again, back to my example, when I, when I was suffering through some issues at work, I, I, you know, this, is, this was a verse that I had to look at several times and I thought, okay, God, you have it in your hands. I don't know why this stuff happens, but I trust you. The second thing we want to do is, is this is a really meaningful and deep understanding. We need to know that when we are suffering like this, here's the interesting thing. We share in the sufferings of Christ. We have fellowship with Christ. That concept has always really astounded me, and, I, and you see it throughout the Bible, this sharing in Christ's sufferings. And Paul will say in various verses, you know, to, to uh, fill up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings or, or to, to complete it, which is crazy. But here's the thing. He says in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And, and that's, again, where we understand, and I said it before, the trials, the situations. The more we suffer like Christ, the more we know Christ, and the more 
we will be like Christ. That is how we become more like Christ. We understand him better. Now, we don't go looking for trouble, but when it comes, when we have those trials, we can have joy. We can know that they will grow us and change us. The next thing is, as Paul did, we want to share our testimony at every opportunity. And, and that's the interesting thing. In, in, first, I'm sorry, in Colossians 1.24, Paul actually talks about you know, how he suffers for the body of Christ, how it's, it's for the growth of the body of Christ. We can praise him knowing that more people will come to the Lord. We don't know how many people in that crowd looked at his response and thought, wow, I need to know what's going on there. But he was arrested, he was beaten, and you know, he took it as an opportunity. He stops, he wants to tell his story. He, want, he was just beaten, and he wants to tell his story. Do you want to tell your story that bad? The story of how Christ changed your life? Because those are the powerful stories that people cannot refute. This is your story about how God changed your life. How I was this way. I was, I was a drunk. I was living on my own. And Christ found me and he brought me into the light. Those are the stories. Those are the stories that really change lives. We need to see the opportunities like he did in the weirdest circumstances, in the most difficult circumstances. And think about Paul. He's sitting there in front of all these zealous Jews, and he's like, I was just like you. I was just like you. I was persecuting Christ. I was against the way. I was just like you. I thought I knew it. I thought I had it all figured out. But I found the way, the truth, and the life, and let me talk to you about him. That's what he was saying. And last, we have to look at the eternal rewards, right? I mean, what kind of a message would the gospel be if I told you, get ready for persecution, get ready for trials, get ready for hardships, and when we all die, it didn't really matter. That's all there is to life. I mean, this is the hope of every believer. This is what motivated Paul. This is what should motivate you to be willing, able to share your testimony, to stand up for your faith, to motivate you to react in ways that are completely foreign to this world, to see your present circumstances through the lens of eternity. What would your life be like if you did that? If every day, everything that happened, every situation, you started to look at your present circumstances through the lens of eternity. That is the hope of every believer in this room. And so, when we are misunderstood and maligned, like Paul, we don't have to worry. We can follow Christ as Paul followed Christ. It's not about pleasing people. Obviously, Paul did not please anybody in Jerusalem. He made an entire ruckus, a riot. But he did please one person, Jesus Christ, his Savior. And that's who we're here to please. Right? He followed the example of Christ. And that is what we, we sign up for. We're, we're a church about discipleship. We talk about it. 
I have to be honest with you, that's what we're signing up for. That's what we're signing up for together. But we're not alone. We walk that narrow road together. And we want you to get into a small group. We want you to be involved with your fellow believers because when these troubles come, it's a lot easier to walk alongside of somebody who has your back, right? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for what you've done for us, Lord. We humbly come before you. We, we exalt your name. We, we praise you. We can have faith and hope and joy in knowing that you are with us wherever we go. You never leave us. You never forsake us. There are no trials or tribulations or persecutions or anything that can separate us from the love of your son, Jesus Christ. And we don't have an unsympathetic Savior. He came, he dwelled among us, and he suffered like no one else had ever suffered. He faced mockery like no one else has ever faced. Persecution, ridicule. And he died and was buried and rose again all for our salvation. So we know, Lord, through the example of Christ, we can walk with you through any trial, any tribulation. There is nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. We thank you for the eternal hope, the salvation we have, but not only that, the future glorification that you will give us as your sons and daughters. We thank you for our children, Lord. We thank you for having a place that's safe to, to raise them up in, in, a, in godly actions and, and, and in boldness so that they can go out and preach the gospel and share their testimony, to share what you have done in their lives. May we personally be examples to the next generation, to the younger believers. May we be examples to those around us that we would choose whose side we're on, that we would only always choose you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.